into the theology pit. Theology pit. You're falling in the theology pit. Everyone, welcome back to the Theology Pit. This is Theology out of Pittsburgh, and not to be confused with the Bottomless Pit, because you know what we say: when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. But here in the Theology Pit, you know that that's not true—that you don't die of dehydration in the Theology Pit, because we're a pit of theology, a pit of knowledge, a pit where we study about God. That's what theology is. It is two words: theos and logos, a study of God, a word about God. And that's what makes this just so much fun, um, doing the Theology Pit. Of course, I'm your host, Samson Kovach, and we are continuing with our series on the Bible. Now, we are up to the point where we're going to be discussing um, proving the inspiration within the Bible. And I know that this can sound circular to some people, because the way we're going to prove inspiration is we're going to use the Bible to prove that the Bible is inspired. Now, you know, some people may object to that. Okay, and say, well, you know, I can prove that something I wrote is inspired because if you read it, it says right here that I wrote this that I wrote is inspired, and therefore it is. And I would agree that yes, that's circular reasoning. But with the Bible, it's it's a collection of books, okay, and it's a collection of books that was written, you know, over a very long period of time, you know, over 1500 years, three different continents, three different languages, over 40 different authors. All right. So trying to get all of that to harmonize together, I mean, it would be nearly impossible, but showing that it's inspired and that it's not self self authenticating in a circular manner. That would be almost impossible for any other book out there that's doing it, or collection of books. Uh, better said, collection of books. And sure, you have stuff like, you know, the Quran or the Book of Mormon that you know claim to be, you know, inspired. They claim to be the Word of God, but they're circular in their reasoning if they're trying to prove, um, you know, um, inspiration, uh, authority that they are actually from God. So. We're asking the question on how do we know that the Bible is inspired? Okay, you know how how do we how do we show that? How do we prove that? And by showing that the New Testament's reliable, and then showing that the Old Testament is reliable, we can now look at what these two groups of manuscripts say together about themselves, about the topics that they're talking about. And is this something that we can say is inspired? Because if it is, shouldn't it have certain key elements to it? And that is what we're going to discuss in this Theology Pit. All right, so where I want to get started with this is, you know, I kind of want to ask a few questions and and think about this, because if you never really thought about why we consider the Bible inspired, I mean, you know, as Christians, we just accept it and kind of, we don't think about it. I mean, maybe somebody gave it to us and just said, okay, this isn't the inspired word of God. Okay. No questioning, not why is it inspired? What makes it inspired? How do we know? Or what evidence is there? 
that this is actually inspired. Some Christians think that if you're asking for proof, if you're asking for evidence, then somehow you are offending God. That That is something that's taboo. That's something that we should not do. Christians should not question. We should not question the Bible. We should not question the Word of God. We should not question our church. We should not question our pastors. Okay? And a lot of, you know, anti-theists and atheists, that's, that's the way that they view Christians. And that's the way they view Christianity. And they say... Um, well, that's why Christians believe that the Bible is the Word of God or that you know it's inspired is because they are told by their pastors, by their churches, by their communities that it is and you shouldn't question it. But is that what we get from the Bible? I mean, you kind of run up against the same thing when, when you know, you talk about faith. And it's almost like I want to tell like anti-theists and atheists that, no, I actually don't have any faith because... Um, as a Christian, our definition of faith is the threefold, uh, you know, notitius, ascensus, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia, um, that you have to have knowledge of it, you have to assent to it, uh, agree with it, and then um, you have to, you know, put your trust in it, and that's what faith is. So faith is something that actually has a tangible element to it, where they are taking faith and just saying, well, it's just blind faith. So when they use it, they say, oh, well, you just have to stop having faith and actually look at things that are real. And it's like, well, the reason why I have faith that my car will stop when I push the brake is because I've had tangible evidence of it over and over again, stopping whenever I push the brake when I'm driving. Um, and it's the same thing with, with the Bible and the same thing with God and what he's demonstrated. He says things like, look, you know, I want you to test me. I mean, he is all about history. That's why in the old Testament, you see, um, the Israelites constantly having, uh, feasts, constantly having, um, uh, things like that they would build, like like reminders and stuff, so that they could remember. You know, the Passover meal, they celebrate it every single year. They're commanded to celebrate it every single year. Why? So that they remember what God has done. It doesn't just ask for blind faith. It says, you trust me and you know me because of, look at what I've done. Okay? This is the same type of thing that um, God asks in... Uh, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. I mean, honestly, how come Christ didn't just say, look, just believe me, okay? And that's it. Just just believe me. Uh, why was the resurrection so physical? Why was his ministry so physical? Why was everything that was going on so physical and so proven? And you put in things like, um, like Doubting Thomas, like, I'm not going to believe unless I, you know, put my finger in his side and I'm not going to, you know, I mean, you have all of this physical evidence, the, the, the stress that is put on, you know, uh, you know, the one whom our, you know, our hands have touched, who we have ate with, who we, I mean, everything was physical. Everything was based off of, you know, a, a type of evidence. Even Paul would say, Hey, don't believe me. He appeared to more when he as his resurrection. He appeared to more than five hundred people at one time. Some of them have died, but a lot of them are still alive. Go ask them. Don't just believe me. Go ask them. Okay, that's putting it outside of you. 
that is evidence, okay? That is tangible. That is not blind faith, okay? That's not even what blind faith is. Well, you know, blind faith is, okay, look, you just have to accept it because. And in the Old Testament, let's say that you had a prophet that came, all right? That prophet would not only have to be right and be orthodox and, you know, say, uh, you know, the right things, but he had to prove himself as a prophet, okay, of God, by doing a sign, by doing a miracle. And then, once that miracle was done, then he would, you know, you would have to listen to him and make sure that what he said was orthodox. So, there was there was evidence all over the place that, um, that had to be... Uh, you know, that had to be in place, that had to be demonstrated. That is the God of the Bible. That is what he requires. And that's what he required of himself. Okay. I mean, in um, the book of Isaiah here, it says in chapter 44 here, um, you know, verse one, God's kind of giving his own apologetic here. You know, I mean, you have Israel in, in, in Isaiah at this time, they're, they're going after all these false gods, all these, you know, wooden carved idols because, Hey, they're a tangible thing. So that's what we're looking for. Right. And it's like, no, our God is spirit. And so God is like uh, upset about this. And, you know, what he says to them is, uh, starting in uh, verse 2, this is what the Lord, the one who made you, says to the one who formed you in the womb and helps you, do not be afraid, my servant Jacob, uh, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the parched ground, cause streams to be flown in dry land. I will pour my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your children. They will sprout up like a tree in the grass, the uh, uh, like poplars besides the channel of waters. One will say, I belong to the Lord, and another will use the name Jacob. One will write on his hand, uh, the Lord's, and use the name Israel. Now, check this out. In verse 6, what happens here? He says, um, this is what the Lord Israel's king says, their protector, the Lord who commands armies. I am the first and I am the last. There is no God but me. Who is like me? Let him make his claim. All right. So God's saying, all right, if there is a God out there, another God out there, let, let's hear from him. Let's hear from him. How are we supposed to hear from him? Okay. It says, let him announce it and explain to me. Since I established an ancient people, let them announce future events. So God's saying, look, I established Israel, all right? I have brought them out of Egypt up to this point. I've said and I've done all these things. I said something was going to happen and then I brought it to happen. What, who else has done that? Bring another God to me and show me that they've done that. I have, this is evidence in your lives, in your history, in your people of that being done. So right here in, in um, chapter 44, verse 6, God is saying that, okay? Um, and verse uh, verse 7, um, he says, you know, don't panic, don't be afraid. I did not, did I not tell you beforehand and decree it? You are my witness. There, if there, is there any other God but me? There is no other sheltering rock. I, I know of none. He's even saying, look, I'm God, and even I don't know of any other gods. Okay? So, what are you bowing down and worshiping? What are you looking at? And then he goes on to kind of 
you know, mock them who are forming idols, which are nothing. They're just stone and, and wood and just, you know, precious metals and everything, but they're not gods. That's most certainly what they are not. And so when we're looking at when it comes to inspiration, okay, we can question, all right, it's okay that, you know, as Christians, we question because God is saying, no, go ahead and question. Go ahead and do it because look, I've given this evidence. I've I've proven this stuff. So we're not looking at the Bible is the Bible. It's inspired by the word of God because it says that it's inspired by the word of God. Okay. God proved who he is, and that's why we can trust him. So another question comes in: is there any evidence? for the historicity of the Bible outside of Scripture. And I think that's important to look at, too, because honestly, if we're saying that a lot of this stuff is historical narrative, especially Old Testament and, you know, some of the New Testament, well, then it should correspond with natural history, right? I mean, even though the Bible is the gold standard of historical writings, um, that doesn't mean we should exclude all other histories. No, we should look at them and we should be able to see, hey, you know, is does, does this line up? Does this match up? Okay. So, when we, we're going to look start looking at a couple things here. Self-attestation. Okay, the, the scripture claims that it's inspired, all right, in, in many places in a lot of different ways. The uniqueness of the Bible, the fact that, you know, it is that collection of, you know, 66 books or 72 books or however many books you want to, you know, say are in there. But, you know, it has that, that uniqueness that we talked about earlier about being almost like an encyclopedia. Um, the historicity of it, there's internal evidence from the scripture and there's external evidence outside of it. The internal evidence that we see is like, you know, honesty, okay? The fact that it is brutally honest, all right? You read histories of other nations, and it seems like they are the greatest nations in the world and have the best armies and are totally unstoppable in so many ways, and then all of a sudden they cease to exist. There's an army that came in and beat them. How was that? They never lost a battle. They never lost a war. They, you know, I mean, nothing. I mean, well, the Bible is a little bit different on that. I mean, read the book of Judges. The book of Judges is a repetition of, you know, a generation remembering Yahweh and worshiping him. The next generation, well, I'm not really sure who Yahweh is. I mean, that's someone that my, my dad or my grandpa, you know, worshiped. And then they forget. And then they go after you know these other these other gods, and they they fall into um, you know the hands of their their enemies. And God raises up a judge, and the judge comes and uh, frees them from um, the people who are oppressing them. And then they worship Yahweh. And then a generation passes, and they forget who Yahweh is, and they say, "Well, it's someone that my dad or my grandfather." And that is the book of Judges over and over and over again. It sort of says we suck. You know, uh, what is that like a call? Like, hey, come join us. We're so, and it doesn't end well either. I mean, you read the end of the book of Judges, you're like, that's kind of disturbing. You know, it doesn't get better. It's a brutally honest history that they are that they're keeping with themselves. Um, you know, it, when you look at the list of people that they held up, and and that's why you have to understand the difference between prescriptive writing that's telling you the way you should behave and descriptive writing that's telling you the way that people behaved and the way that, you know, things happened. Because 
you know, you have in there where you, you think about some of the the big names in the Bible. Okay, David. Yeah, he was a murderer. Okay, he was a murderer and he was an adulterer. Peter denied Christ. I mean, if we didn't have it in there where Peter denied Christ three times because Jesus did, you know, forgive him three times, reinstate him three times. All right. So why couldn't we just leave that out? Well, because it's brutally honest and it's, you know, it's, it's being left in there. The apostles, they abandoned Christ. All right. After the crucifixion, they took off. They were gone. So, but they came back. And, you know, and, and Christianity was birthed and, you know, from then until now, you know, the church has grown. So why bother putting in there that they ran away? All right. Um, that uh, Moses became angry. Um, Jacob deceived. Noah got drunk. You know, uh, Adam and Eve disobeyed. Uh, Paul persecuted. He was a murderer. Solomon worshipped idols. Um, Abraham was a bigamist. Lot committed incest. John the Baptist doubted. Abraham doubted. Sarah doubted. Nicodemus doubted. Thomas doubted. Jonah ran. Samson was self-serving. Um, John, the apostle, who wrote you know, the, the gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John in the book of Revelation, worshipped an angel. He, was, he wrote what some people consider to be the last book of the New Testament. Of anybody, you would think that he would be someone who kind of got it. And in the book of Revelation, you see he falls down and worships an angel. Um, in addition, uh, the most faithful are seen as suffering the most. most. Uh, Job and Lazarus, for example, um, while the wicked are seen as prospering. And the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Okay, uh, But this is, you know, part of the the issue that you have if something is authentic, if something is real, if something is not being made up to, to further a, a story or a narrative or to get people, you know, following you or starting a new religion or anything or, you know, hey, this person, you know, all these people are perfect that follow it and you should follow it too. No, this is warts and all. Um this is something that is very unique. And also, it's honest in the fact that it has irrelevant details in it. Okay? I mean, here's here's just an excerpt from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 1 through 8. Okay? And this is taken from Gregory Boyd, Boyd's um, book, uh, Letters to a Skeptic. All right? Here's how he wrote it. Early on, the first day of the week... In parentheses, when? Does it matter? While it was still dark. Well, who cares if it was still dark? Mary Magdalene. Okay, that's an incriminating detail because you're taking a woman's opinion at the time. Like that is, you know, something that you can really trust. Um, Went to the tomb and saw the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved. And this is John's modest way of referring to himself. Okay, another mark of genuineness, because if it was a pseudepigrapher work, he would have most definitely tried to name drop and saying, I, John, the one who you should respect and you know agree, agree with this. And if you remember few podcasts ago, or more than a few ago, about um, pseudepigrapher work and um, you know the, the apocryphal work. I guess it would be more pseudopigger for writing under somebody's name, why that's such a big deal. And said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know uh, where they have taken him. And, you know, note her lack of faith here. 
All right, so Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb, and they were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. John's modesty again, but who cares about the irrelevant detail? Okay, so John runs faster than Peter. Who cares? Why, why put that in there? You know, remember when we were reading through the Gnostic Gospels and we were looking at that, they didn't have all this irrelevant detail. You know, they had stuff that only supported what they wanted to support, what they wanted to uh, kind of point out with everything. He bent over. All right, the tomb of the entrance was low, a detail which is historically accurate of wealthy people at the time, the kind we know Jesus was buried in, and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Why not? It's an irrelevant detail. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, modest repetition again, arrived and went in the tomb. Peter's boldness stands out in all the gospel accounts. Okay, so they're sticking with, hey, this is the type of person that Peter was. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. Irrelevant and unexpected detail, what was Jesus wearing? The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Could anything be more irrelevant and more unusual than this? Jesus folded one part of his wrapping before he left. And there is a historical you know, reason for that. Um, I, I, it just popped into my head. I can't remember exactly what it, for, what, what it was from, but it had something to do, if I remember correctly, um, with a worker whenever they were finished um, to let the person know that the work had been done and that they would be um, that they would return later to collect um, the what was you know what was owed to them um, that they would leave a uh, piece of cloth or something folded and and left there that it was folded meaning that it was it was finished which is an interesting you know aspect of this um, but to continue on, finally, the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went inside. Who cares about exactly what order they went in? All right. The Bible also talks about how man is hopelessly sinful. All right. We can't do anything right. All right. Especially the, the apostles. They never get it. I mean, they, they never, when you read through the gospels, the apostles are constantly clueless. I mean, that's just how they are. They, they never get it. They're always seen in you know, more or less a bad light, okay? The primary hero is murdered by man. Nobody ever understands what's going on in God's plan, which leaves no motive for any proposed embellishment. Only through progressive revelation does the reader understand the full message, okay? Nobody's getting it. Um, women are the first to witness Christ's resurrection, and that's recorded, which, again, is not seen as a positive thing at that time. A woman's testimony was worthless at that time. Man would not create the tensions of predestination and human responsibility, the trinity, the hypostatic union, etc., I mean, that's very, in my opinion, very Calvinistic statement with the uh, predestination human responsibility thing. Uh, but still, you know, at this you know, in this time period that we're talking in now, you know, the, you know, 2017 here, um, that does kind of ring true because of progressive understanding, you know, from a Calvinist perspective. Yeah, we kind of get that tension there. And uh, many texts contain inherent ambiguity. Ambiguity, ambiguity. Excuse me. Like the meaning of baptism for the dead in First Corinthians fifteen twenty nine. Nobody knows what that means. The Mormons claim that they do, but it's only because everybody else is like, we don't know what that means, and they're like, ah, we do. And it's like, no, you don't. You're just saying that you do. All right, and so that's why Mormons baptize themselves for dead people constantly. Um, 
the keys to the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 16, 9 and the seed of the woman. All right. All that stuff is a little bit ambiguous. Through progressive revelation, though, and progressive understanding, we can figure that out. But at the time that it's, it's written, what? nobody's really getting it. Excuse me there. I had to take a, take a sip. Okay, so you have the harmony aspect also. Okay, and despite the fact that the scriptures are a collection of multiple compositions, multiple scrolls and just writings written by different authors over that time period, there's still this one harmonious, historical, legitimate story. Okay, especially through you know the gospel accounts, but through the whole Bible, it's all, the meta narrative of the Bible is all about the um, generation, degeneration, and regeneration of mankind. That's it. It starts from the beginning with the Proto Evangelium in the um, the Book of Genesis, where God says that He's going to make. All of the, you know, he's going to make everything right. He's going to, to fix it. That's the first good news there. Okay. The testable extraordinary claims. Um, there are thousands of historical claims of extraordinary events, of miracles, um, giving extensive detail of the events themselves, time, location of occurrence, and the witnessing audience, um, with the result that they are testable through the normal historical means of, of, of objectifying the past. So, this is written to somebody at that contemporary time. They're saying, hey, check it out. Go see it. This is going on right now. This is happening. Okay? If it wasn't, I think we would see a lot of literature that would be coming out because there are a lot of people that had a lot to lose if Christianity was true. And so, I think you would see a lot more um, stuff coming out against Christianity than for it. And I'm, I, I want to apologize for the sound. I'm kind of adjusting the sound as I'm talking. Uh, so it may be getting louder and, and quieter. Right now it's at a louder point. I'm just trying not to overmodulate while I'm talking. I get kind of excited when I talk about this stuff. So <laughs> sorry about that. Um, there's a lack of motive for fabrication. Okay, If the scriptures are fabricated and there's no valid motive for the writers of scripture to record what they did, the gospel writers, for example... They didn't gain anything but persecution for their beliefs, okay? The church was persecuted for the first, you know, uh, two, three hundred years of its existence. So what would you gain from that? You're in a hostile environment, okay? Uh, Writing this stuff down and believing it would bring further rejection of your family, of friends, of the state, of everything. It was... Almost a death sentence, okay? Especially being baptized. Um, if you were baptized as a Christian, I mean, it, it matters today, but it's not as visible as it was back then. Back then, I mean, it's a dirtier culture. And I don't mean that to be negative. I just mean that, like, truthfully, like, they didn't bathe every single day. Um, they're on dusty roads all the time. There's a certain amount of, you know, dirt and grit that, you know, you have on you. When you're baptized, that's all washed away. You're completely clean. It's very visibly noticeable if you're in a crowd of people that are all, you know, kind of dusty, dirty, and smelly, and here you are not. What happened? Did you, were you in water? Were you under, you know, were you washed up for some reason? Why? Why did you do that? There's a cult going around calling themselves Christians um, or who are called Christians that are are doing that. Are you one of them? You know? So, um, 
that's some of the internal evidence. The external that we have, um, you know, you have preservation, um, which we've gone over a lot in this series. So I'm not going to you know, rehash all of that. But you know, the fact that the Bible is. Um, you know, the most well-attested ancient book, that it is the best-selling book, um, and that it's, you know, being protected. The, um, the, the, the voice of God in his, in his word. And, and it's interesting because we, we, we tend to use the word for like spoken word and written word interchangeably in English, but you know, you have graphia and you have, um, logos in the Greek. So, you know, you, you have like two different ways that it's used here. And so that can get, you know, kind of, um, uh, mixed up in, in our culture. Um, but the fact that, you know, that this written word, and when we get later on into uh, biblical interpretation, uh, we'll discuss a, a little bit more about, you know, the, why that's important. But um, archaeology, let's go to the next one. Um, you have archaeological uh, confirmation of what's going on in the Bible. There are even... Um, stories that I've heard uh, when it came to like wars and battles and stuff that um, they've been able to use the Old Testament you know to plan battles and to plan wars and to see what's gone on and what's happened at that time you also have um, extra biblical attestation there's over 39 extra biblical sources that attest to more than 100 facts regarding the life and teachings of Jesus besides all the apostolic fathers whose witnesses cannot be dismissed simply because they believe that Christ was the Messiah there are Jewish and Roman historians Josephus for example Jewish historian Pliny the Younger all right, he was the emperor of uh, Bithynia. Bithynia, I think that's how it's pronounced. Okay, um, uh, Suetonius was a Roman historian. Tacitus was a Roman historian. Thallus was a Roman historian. Lucian was a Greek satirist, which he was, and he lived from 120 to 1 AD, and he wrote making fun of the Christians, and in doing so, he was um, keeping record of what they believed. Um, uh, Celsus was an opponent of Origen in the uh, second century, and he criticized the Gospels, and he quoted it 80 different times. And he even admits that some of the miracles that, um, that Jesus did were genuinely believed in the second century. Okay? And, you know, the Bible also survived a hostile environment. Okay, people may die for a lie. A lot of people die for a lie, but do people die for knowingly? Do they die knowingly for a lie? Okay, that they know it's a lie. Would they still die for it? Maybe one or two, but are you really going to get 12, 11, all the apostles, everyone that saw everything, and all the 500 that did see something? Everyone, thanks for listening to the Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. All 
All right, so I want to move into the prophetic element here because we can see that from these last few podcasts that the Old Testament is reliable and that the fact that it's reliable from the time before Christ and that the New Testament is reliable as well. So what do these two you know, testaments say you know, uh, uh, about each other, okay? If prophecy does exist, here's a perfect way of testing it. We have tangible evidence of the Old Testament, especially the book of Isaiah is one of the, one of the big ones that's named, but, you know, other books in the Old Testament, the fact that it was recorded so meticulously and it was kept so perfectly for us, and that, you know, evidence of it hundreds of years, at least, you, let's just say at least 100 years before the birth of Christ. Okay, we can just go with that if you want. But it's obviously much older than that. So, um, some list of the prophecies that we find, okay? The seed of the woman, all right? Which, again, in the Septuagint, the word is spermatos that is used. And that's kind of interesting because women don't produce sperm. So, it's looking towards a virgin birth, okay? Um, you get that also, you know, in um, Galatians 4.4 4 and, you know, in the virgin birth uh, narrative there. Um, you get, you know, uh, his flight to Egypt, which is in um, Hosea 11.1, 1, and that's found in Matthew 2.14-15. through 15. Now, this is something that Jesus could not do on his own. He can't control this, okay? He can't he can't control um, what his parents did, okay? Any more than my oldest one, you know, could control what his mother and I did whenever he was like, you know, nine or 10 months old and we moved. You know, he had no say in it. He didn't even know what was going on. So he couldn't uh, manipulate that and say, see, um, this prophecy is now fulfilled. You know, I, there, was, there was no way of that happening. The fact that Jesus was a descendant of Abraham, Okay, the the Messiah would be descendant of Abraham. He couldn't control who his descendants were, that he was heir to the throne of David. He couldn't do that either. But then again, you know, with with all of David's wives and concubines and everything, having um, being part of the Davidic line, kind of iffy there. You know, I mean, just about everybody could have been, but you know, you don't want to stand up and say I'm Davidic or, you know, the Romans would come in and squash it. All right, the fact that it was. prophesied in Micah 5.2 that he'd be born in Bethlehem, all right, Um, that he would be born of a virgin, okay, and that's Isaiah um, chapter 7 and verse 14, and then we see that in Matthew and Luke. Um, The triumphal entry in Jerusalem on a donkey, okay, maybe you could say, hey, that would be something that, you know, you possibly could. Um, betrayed by a, f- a friend for 30 pieces of silver. That was prophesied in Zechariah, also in Psalms. And that was fulfilled in uh, Mark and Matthew. And we see that in Mark and Matthew that they, they recorded that. Um, you know, he was hated without reason. Um, him being crucified, uh, being pierced through his hands and feet. Um, we see that in uh, Zechariah 12, uh, 10, in Psalm 22, 16. And that's, you know, recorded for us, of course, in, uh, in Matthew and in John, that he was you know, pierced through the hands and feet. And the interesting thing is that um, I, I believe, if, if, if I'm not wrong about this, that the Persians invented um, crucifixion, but the Romans perfected it. And the Old Testament was written before the Persians, you know, were uh, taken over, were in charge in, in, in a lot of this stuff. Um, 
you know, he'd be preceded by a forerunner. There'd be somebody that would be coming out, and that was um, John the Baptist. Um, he would uh, declare to be the Son of God. Um, he had a, a ministry, a Galilean ministry, and and you know, people even said, "What good comes out of Galilee?" You know, but that was something that was prophesied that he would speak in parables that he would be a prophet um he would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek which is a type of father son priesthood that was taken away uh from them because of the golden calf incident um Melchizedek was the high priest and king over uh Salem which later became Jerusalem who Abram went and paid um tithes to and he received a blessing and then the sacrament in a in a time of of bloody animal sacrifice, the the sacrifice that was made by Melchizedek was of bread and wine, which is very interesting that it wasn't a bloody sacrifice, but it was a sacrifice of bread and wine, and that's what they um, that that's what they received. Um, uh, that he would be rejected by his own people, the Jews, and that people wouldn't believe him. Okay, so here is one from Isaiah fifty three. Okay, that I want to read through. And this reads as though it was written after the fact. Okay, Isaiah 53, verse um, 1 through 12. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like no one from him, and like no one from uh, whom men hid their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he, he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we were healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people? To whom was the stroke due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. He will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressions, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors.
What do you do with that? I mean, what do you do with that? You, you, I'm reading that, and it's, it seems, you know the story of Christ. You're listening to this. How can that be? What do you do with that? You can't say it was inner pollution. You can't say that it was written later and inserted in. You have tangible evidence from the Dead Sea Scrolls of the book of Isaiah right here. That's what it said. Evidence of at least 100 years before the birth of Christ. That type of detail. What do you do with that? You're obligated to believe. This is one of the biggest prophetic elements. And the fact of the matter that it was the book of Isaiah that there were many copies that were so well preserved. Even the Essenes knew that this talked about the Messiah, the one who was to come. It's spelling it out right here. I find that to be incredible. It's just incredible. You know, I mean... You look at you look at this, okay, and you look at um, you know, what are some of the other ones like like um, in in Psalms, okay, uh, where he, um, you know, where it talks about the the crucifixion. In Psalm one hundred nine, you have it um, talking about this is where when Christ is on the cross and he says, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" He is quoting the first part of Psalm one hundred nine, and anybody that was there that knew this psalm would know exactly what Jesus was talking about because he says um, in my translation it starts out, "O God, whom I praise, do not ignore me, for they say cruel and deceptive things to me. They lie to me. They surround me and say hateful things. They attack me for no reason. They repay my love." with accusations, but I continue to pray. They repay me evil for good and hate for love. Appoint an evil man to testify against him. May an accuser stand at his right side. When he is judged, he will be found guilty. Then his prayer will be regarded as sinful. Okay, he's reminding them of this. Okay, and what are they doing? They're like, you know, he saved others, let him save himself. Or, um, you know, where where is your God now to save you? Let Elijah, he's praying to Elijah for Elijah to come and, and say him. Why don't you save yourself? They're saying all these cruel and, you know, deceptive things about him. They're They're mocking him. They're saying hateful and spiteful things. Another psalm that they would get in their head from the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, would be Psalm 22. Okay, um, where it is more, you know, along the lines of that. I mean, and, and I have to double check, but I think that's exactly what he was quoting in order to get them to think that, you know, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? I groan in my prayer, but help seems far away. My God, I cry out during the day, but you do not answer. And during the night, my prayers do not let up. You are holy. You sit as king, receiving the praises of Israel. To you they cry out, and uh, you were or in. Sorry, my I skipped ahead there. In you our ancestors trusted; they trusted in you, and you rescued them. To you they cried out, and they were saved. In your in you they trusted, and they were not disappointed. But I am a worm, not a man. People insult me and despise me. All who see me taunt me. They mock me and shake their heads. They say, commit yourself to the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let the Lord deliver him, for he delights in him. Yes, you are the one who brought me out from the womb and made me feel secure on my mother's breast. 
I have been dependent on you since birth. From the time when I came out of my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not remain far from me, for trouble is near, and I have no one to help me. Many bulls surround me. Powerful bulls of Bashan hem me in. They open their mouths to devour me like a roaring lion that rips its prey. My strength drains away like water. All my bones are dislocated. My heart is like wax. It melts inside me. The roof of my mouth is as dry as a piece of pottery. My tongue sticks to my gums. You set me in the dust of death. Yes, wild dogs surround me. A gang of evil men crowd around me. Like a lion, they pin my hands and feet. I can count on my bones. My enemies are gloating over me in triumph. They are dividing up my clothes among themselves. They are rolling dice for my garments or casting lots. But you, O Lord, do not remain far away. You are my source of strength. Hurry and and help me. Deliver me from the sword. Save my life from the claws of the wild dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild ox, for you have answered me. Now, this is in Psalm 22 which the Psalms were another ones that were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So you, we know that this is another tangible evidence of this. And like I said about crucifixion, what happens is, you know, you are strung out. Okay. You are, you're pulled out. Your bones come out of socket from the flogging. He, you know, you could see his bones. You could see his ribs. Okay. That, you know, he was completely just ripped apart. All right, he did not even look like a man. He didn't. It, it just didn't resemble it, as as you know Isaiah said. What about all the other things? Them mocking him. Okay, the whole thing. Um, my heart is like wax; it melts inside of me. I talked to a doctor about this one time about the um, you know the the spear going into Christ and blood and water gushing out. And I asked him. I said, "Wouldn't that be from the lungs filling up with fluid?" And he said, no, he was like, if you hit the lung, you just get a little trickle. But when you hit the heart, you get a gush because there's this thing around the heart called the pericardium sac. And the pericardium sac under this type of stress fills with fluid and actually starts to give you a heart attack. It constricts your heart. The pericardium sac was not um, discovered medically or, you know, talked about medically until the, I believe it was the 19th century, he told me. And so, you know, the fact of the matter that it says that blood and water came out, he was really dead. So people that try to say, well, Jesus wasn't dead. He just fainted or something like that. Ridiculous, you know, being flogged that badly and then being crucified and being punctured through. No, he he was very, very dead. So, you know, strength drains away like water, bones dislocated, heart is like wax, it melts away. The roof of the mouth is dry as a piece of pottery, which it was because of all the loss of fluids. And he even said, I thirst at one point. But um, that's not only just to get something to drink, but that's also um, with, I, I think I talked about that in the Salvation Series with um, the understanding of the four cups of Passover and what was going on with that. Um, and he just talks about the people that surrounded me. I can count on my bones. My enemies are gloating over me, dividing up my clothes among themselves, casting lots. Okay. How could Jesus control that? How could they control that if that was something that, you know, uh, was written uh, hundreds of years before? And then it was fulfilled. He had no control over over that, over what was going on. You have all of these. And I mean, I'm not going to spend 
you know, a lot of time um, going over all the different uh, uh, things that were prophesied about what was going to happen to Christ and about his life and everything on on this podcast because this would be extremely long to do. But look them up. I mean, you have things this powerful written here. So let's now let's talk about something. I want. I, there's one more, well, a couple more. But, but one in particular that I really, really want to talk about because it doesn't deal with a person. It deals with a place, okay? And it deals with a place, and it's very, very, very specific within this place. And this is the city of Tyre, okay? The city of Tyre was... Um, it's talked about all through the Old Testament, okay? And it was a city that was said to be destroyed, okay? And the way it is said to be destroyed is what becomes very, very interesting, okay? It's in Ezekiel uh, chapter 26, okay? And it says this. Um, it says, For this is what the Sovereign Lord says, Take note that I am about to bring King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, king of kings, against Tyre from the north with horses, chariots, and horsemen, an army and hordes of people. He will kill your daughters in the field with the sword. He will build a siege wall against you, erect a siege ramp against you, and raise a great shield against you. He will direct the blows of his battering rams against your walls and tear down your towers with his weapons. He will cover you with the dust kicked up by many horses. Your walls will shake from the noise of the horsemen, wheels, and chariots when he enters your gates, like those who invade through a city's broken wall. Um, let's see, let me get some other stuff. You know, your pillars will... Uh, will tumble to the ground. Um, they will steal your wealth, loot your merchandise. They will tear down your walls, destroy your luxurious home, your stones, your trees, and your soil. He will throw into the water. I will silence the noise of your songs. The sound of your harps will be heard no more. I will make you a bare rock. You will be a place where fishing nets are spread. You will never be built again. For I, the Lord, have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. This is Old Testament, okay? Now, when Ezekiel wrote this, okay, the city of Tyre is, um, well, the place where Tyre was is still there, okay? Here's what happened, all right? Tyre was um, a city, a, a fishing village, okay? And it, it's, it's off the Mediterranean Sea. And, you know, this was announced by Ezekiel and you know Ezekiel was making this prophecy in like one uh, or I'm um, sorry like 587 586 BC all right 10 years later or 15 years later is when the destruction took place but here's what happened um Nebuchadnezzar came in and you know destroyed it all right he came in and and wrecked it all right and that happened in 573. Okay, destroyed it. All right, so we got the destruction there. That's fine. But there were a couple other things that, w that would happen too. You know, it said that, you know, the fortresses would fall. The walls would fall. All right. Um, Nebuchadnezzar went through and just like destroyed it, wiped it out. Now, the people of Tyre fled. Okay, and they went to an island right off the coast that was like a like a three quarters of a mile out, maybe, and that's where they set up like the new tire, you know, the the new land. So they were losing their influence as you know a a commerce area, but they were out on this island and everything, 
And, you know, they were, they felt that they were relatively safe because of that. So what happened was then, you know, they were attacked by many people over the years, many different nations. Okay. And then one day someone named Alexander the Great came and he conquered them. And the way that he conquered them was he said, okay, they're out there on that Island. You know what we're going to do? We're going to build a land bridge in order to get to them. All right. Now he had, um, you know, ships coming also, but, um, he was going to get his chariots over there and he was going to get his war machines over there. And that's what they were going to do. So they went to the ruins of the old city of Tyre and they picked up the stones and trees and everything that they could find. And one by one threw it into the sea and made a land bridge. Go to Google Maps right now and look it up. The city of Tyre. It's around uh, Lebanon. Um, you'll see where you know all the buildup, you know, from the soot and everything because of this land bridge has expanded it over time. But this is a that's a man-made bridge. That's a man-made thing that was that was put there. Literally, the city was picked up and thrown into the sea. Okay, by uh, Alexander the Great, and we're talking 332 BC. All right. They went in and destroyed them, decimated them. Okay. Um, they were continually burnt and just ripped apart and destroyed. And even when, um, you know, the, uh, uh, the Muslims went through later on and the Crusades happened and just destroyed it to where it is, it's no good now for anything but for fishermen to dry their nets. And you can find pictures of that online, that that's where fishermen dry their nets on this, this place where Tyre used to sit. All right. So you have all of these things that are occurring that, that said in, in the Bible here that would happen to this city. And these things happened not all at once, but over, you know, like what, a thousand year period or so. Every single one of these came through. All right. We had Nebuchadnezzar destroying it. That's one. All right. It lost its its power and its prestige. That was two. It was picked up and thrown into the sea. All right. That was three. It's a place where fishermen dry their nets. Four. And five, it has never been rebuilt ever. In this small portion of scripture right here. That is another powerful prophecy that is able to be tested, not through the attestation of the New Testament talking about it, but through natural history talking about it. Something that was said. So what do you do with that? What do you do with that? The inspiration of the Bible, and I talked about this before, is not like Nostradamus, okay? It's not very, you know... Uh, well, the great nation that attacks another great nation, that great nation will definitely fall, like the oracles of you know the time of the Spartans and stuff like that. It's not up to the person's interpretation. This talks about an exact place at an exact time with people that are going to come against it and what is exactly going to happen happened to it. Five direct things. And you could probably comb through and find a few more than that. But five exact things that you find outside of it that attest to it. That's called prophecy. That's something that only a God can do. That is 
the Bible. There are lots of prophecies there. People have written books on the number of prophecies. Just on the, on Christ, prophecies about Christ. I know there are over 300 that people have, have cataloged in, in looking for. But you have prophecies like this about cities, about things that are going to happen to them. And then they come to pass. Not because the Bible said they come to pass, but because we have to go outside of the Bible to see natural history. Okay, they said it was going to happen. Let's see, did it happen? You know, I mean, if when it says something and it, and it happens within that time period, maybe they would write about it. Maybe they would, would put that in there. But then again, we'd say, well, that's kind of circular reasoning. But think about like, you know, the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. If the New Testament was written after that happened, they would put that fact in there and say, look, this happened. Jesus prophesied it. This was definitely going to occur. And therefore it was, but it's not, which is why I always kind of lean towards, you know, the, the New Testament being finished before the destruction of the temple in, in 70 AD, because that detail, that um, prophetic, uh, uh, you know, come about, I guess that's a bad, bad way of saying that, I suppose. But that uh, fulfillment um, is not recorded in there. It's left to natural history. Everybody knows that that happened. And here, with the city of Tyre, it's the same thing. You know what? I mean, what I said about Tyre here, go, go to Wikipedia. Look at what it says about it. Look at what it says about its history. Okay? This is, you know, actual stuff. So, now that we've established that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, well, what do we do with it? How do we interpret it? How do we apply it to our lives? What's the best way to go about doing that? Well, that's where we need to move into the study of hermeneutics, and that's the art and science of biblical interpretation. We know that the Bible is reliable. As a book of man, history, it's a very reliable book. It's well-preserved. As a book of God, it's inspired. There's a divine aspect that is engaging in this, and we have that proof all through history. We have the proof through itself, tangible proof. If you want to say scientific proof, there you go. It's right there. You can't deny that. Say whatever you want, but you can't deny the evidence that I've put forward in the last three or four episodes here when it comes to the Old Testament. And then you add the New Testament and also in its reliability and what's going on. But now what do, what do we do with it? How do we apply that to our lives? But the more important question is, how have people applied it? I think we need to look back at the way people have interpreted scripture all through history and look at how we interpret it now through hermeneutics. So next week, we're going to start our study of hermeneutics and how are we to interpret the Bible. All right. So thanks for being on this uh this, this journey with me here and, and, and kind of walking through all this. I hope you've been enjoying it. Um, you know, if you would like to uh, donate, you can at samsonstick.com. Um, you can become a Patreon subscriber. Um, it's, I mean, I, I'd appreciate the money, but right now you really don't get a lot out of it. Um, sorry about that. I need to work on that a little harder. Uh, but like us on Facebook. Um, share these with your friends. I really appreciate that. You share it on Facebook, on Twitter, on wh- wherever, you know, telling people about sharing, sharing it with them. You can email me, uh, Samson at samsonstick.com. Visit me, samsonstick.com. Uh, if you want to comment on these episodes, you can, but you know, generally it takes 10, um, days and then it's that, you know, I don't have any 
Uh, it, you're not available to, to comment. You're not able to comment on it anymore. But, um, you know, uh, if you like these, if you don't, hey, let me know. You know, I, I really appreciate it. Um, all the feedback that I get. Um, appreciate people listening. I appreciate people sharing it. And I just really uh, appreciate what you guys are doing. I'm, I'm thankful that God is allowing me to do this sort of thing. And, um, you know, I think that now it is most definitely time to close down the pit. Thank you.